Part 12 of The Naval War of 1812 by Theodore Roosevelt. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Part 12. There happened to be circumstances which rendered the bragging of our writers over the victory somewhat plausible. Thus they could say with an appearance of truth that the enemy had 63 guns to our 54 and outnumbered us. In reality, as well as can be ascertained from the conflicting evidence, he was inferior in number, but a few men, more or less, mattered nothing. Both sides had men enough to work the guns and handle the ships, especially as the fight was in smooth water, and largely at long range. The important fact was that, though we had nine guns less yet at a broadside, they threw half as much metal again as those of our antagonist. With such odds in our favor, it would have been a disgrace to have been beaten. The water was too smooth for our two brigs to show at their best, but this very smoothness rendered our gunboats more formidable than any of the British vessels. And the British testimony is unanimous that it was to them the defeat was primarily due. The American fleet came into action in worse form than the hostile squadron, the ships straggling badly, either owing to Perry having formed his line badly, or else to his having failed to train the subordinate commanders how to keep their places. The Niagara was not fought well at first, Captain Elliot keeping her at a distance that prevented her from doing any damage to the vessels opposed, which were battered to pieces by the gunboats without the chance of replying. It certainly seems as if the small vessels at the rear of the line should have been closer up, and in a position to render more effectual assistance. The attack was made in too loose order, and whether it was the fault of Perry or of his subordinates, it fails to reflect credit on the Americans. Cooper, as usual, praises all concerned, but in this instance not with very good judgment. He says the line of battle was highly judicious, but this may be doubted. The weather was peculiarly suited for the gunboats, with their long heavy guns, and yet the line of battle was so arranged as to keep them in the rear, and let the brunt of the assault fall on the Lawrence, with her short carronades. Cooper again praises Perry for steering for the head of the enemy's line, but he could hardly have done anything else. In this battle the firing seems to have been equally skillful on both sides, the Detroit's long guns being peculiarly well served but the British captains maneuvered better than their foes at first, and supported one another better, so that the disparity in damage done on each side was not equal to the disparity in force. The chief merit of the American commander and his followers was indomitable courage and determination not to be beaten. This is no slight merit, but it may well be doubted if it would have ensured victory had Barclay's force been as strong as Perry's. Perry made a headlong attack. His superior force, whether through his fault or his misfortune, can hardly be said, being brought into action in such a manner that the head of the line was crushed by the inferior force opposed. Being literally hammered out of his own ship, Perry brought up its powerful twin sister and the already shattered hostile squadron was crushed by sheer weight. The maneuvers which marked the close of the battle and which ensured the capture of all the opposing ships were unquestionably very fine. The British ships were fought as resolutely as their antagonists, not being surrendered till they were crippled and helpless and almost all the officers and a large proportion of the men placed hors de combat. Captain Barclay handled his ships like a first-rate seaman. It was impossible to arrange them so as to be superior to his antagonist, 
for the latter's force was of such a nature that in smooth water his gunboats gave him a great advantage while in any sea his two brigs were more than a match for the whole british squadron in short our victory was due to our heavy metal as regards the honour of the affair in spite of the amount of boasting it has given rise to i should say it was a battle to be looked upon as in an equally high degree creditable to both sides indeed if it were not for the fact that the victory was so complete it might be said that the length of the contest and the trifling disparity in loss reflected rather the most credit on the british captain perry showed indomitable pluck and readiness to adapt himself to circumstances but his claim to fame rests much less on his actual victory than on the way in which he prepared the fleet that was to win it here his energy and activity deserve all praise not only for his success in collecting sailors and vessels and in building the two brigs but above all for the manner in which he succeeded in getting them on the lake on that occasion he certainly outgeneraled barclay indeed the latter committed an error that the skill and address he subsequently showed could not retrieve but it will always be a source of surprise that the american public should have so glorified perry's victory over an inferior force and have paid comparatively little attention to macdonough's victory which really was won against decided odds in ships men and metal there are always men who consider it unpatriotic to tell the truth if the truth is not very flattering but aside from the morality of the case we never can learn how to produce a certain effect unless we know rightly what the causes were that produced a similar effect in times past lake erie teaches us the advantage of having the odds on our side lake champlain that even if they are not the skill can still counteract them it is amusing to read some of the pamphlets written in reply to cooper's account of this battle the writers apparently regarding him as a kind of traitor for hinting that the victory was not nelsonic unsurpassed etc the arguments are stereotyped perry had nine fewer guns and also fewer men than the foe this last point is the only one respecting which there is any doubt taking sick and well together the americans unquestionably had the greatest number in crew but a quarter of them were sick even deducting these they were still in all probability more numerous than their foes but it is really not a point of much consequence as both sides had enough as stated to serve the guns and handle the ships in sea fights after there are enough hands for those purposes additional ones are not of so much advantage i have in all my accounts summed up as accurately as possible the contending forces because it is so customary with british writers to follow james's minute and inaccurate statements that i thought it best to give everything exactly but it was really scarcely necessary and indeed it is impossible to compare forces numerically aside from a few exceptional cases the number of men after a certain point was reached made little difference for example the java would fight just as effectively with three hundred and seventy seven men the number james gives her as with four hundred twenty six a number i think she really had again my figures made the wasp slightly superior in force to the frolic as she had twenty-five men the most but in reality as the battle was fought under very short sail and decided purely by gunnery the difference in number of crew was not of the least consequence the hornet had nine men more than the penguin and it would be absurd to say that this gave her much advantage in both the latter cases the forces were practically equal although numerically expressed 
the odds were in favor of the Americans. The exact reverse is the case in the last action of the Constitution. Here the Levant and Cayenne had all the men they required, and threw a heavier broadside than their foe. Expressed in numbers, the odds against them were not great, but numbers could not express the fact that carronades were opposed to long guns, and two small ships to one big one. Again, though in the action on Lake Champlain, numbers do show a slight advantage, both in weight of metal and number of men on the British side, they do not make the advantage as great as it really was, for they do not show that the British possessed a frigate with a main-deck battery of twenty-four-pounders, which was equal to the two chief vessels of the Americans, exactly as the Constitution was superior to the Cayenne and Levant. Footnote. It must always be remembered that these rules cut both ways. British writers are very eloquent about the disadvantage in which carronades placed the Cayenne and Levant, but do not hint that the Essex suffered from a precisely similar cause, in addition to her other misfortunes. Either they should give the Constitution more credit, or the Phoebe less. So the Confiance, throwing 480 pounds of metal at a broadside, was really equal to both the Eagle and Saratoga, who jointly threw 678. From her long guns she threw 384 pounds from her carronades 96, their long guns threw 168, their carronades 510. Now the 32-pound carronade mounted on the spar deck of a 38-gun frigate was certainly much less formidable than the long 18 on the main deck. Indeed, it probably ranked more nearly with a long 12 in the ordinary chances of war, and it must be remembered that Downey was the attacking party and chose his own position so far as McDonough's excellent arrangements would let him. So that in comparing the forces, the carronades should not be reckoned for more than half the value of the long guns, and we get as a mere approximation 384 plus 48 equals 432 against 168 plus 255 equals 423. At any rate, British writers as well as Americans should remember that if the Constitution was greatly superior to her two foes, then the Confiance was certainly equal to the Eagle and Saratoga, and vice versa. End of footnote. And on the same principles, I think that every fair-minded man must admit the great superiority of Perry's fleet over Barclays, though the advantage was greater in carronades than in long guns. But to admit this by no means precludes us from taking credit for the victory. Almost all the victories gained by the English over the Dutch in the seventeenth century were due purely to great superiority in force. The cases have a curious analogy to this lake battle. Perry won with fifty-four guns against Barclay's sixty-three, but the odds were largely in his favor. Blake won a doubtful victory on the 18th of February, 1653, with eighty ships against Tromp's seventy but the English vessels were twice the size of the Dutch, and in number of men and weight of metal, greatly their superior. The English were excellent fighters, but no better than the Dutch, and none of their admirals of that period deserved to rank with de Reuter. Again, the great victory of La Hogue was won over a very much smaller French fleet after a day's hard fighting which resulted in the capture of one vessel. This victory was most exultingly chronicled, yet it was precisely as if Perry had fought Barclay all day and only succeeded in capturing the little belt. Most of Lord Nelson's successes were certainly won against heavy odds by his great genius and the daring skill of the captains who served under him but the Battle of the Baltic, as far as the fighting went, 
reflected as much honor on the defeated Danes as on the mighty sea chief who conquered them. Many a much-vaunted victory, both on sea and land, has really reflected less credit on the victors than the Battle of Lake Erie did on the Americans. And it must always be remembered that a victory, honorably won, if even over a weaker foe, does reflect credit on the nation by whom it is gained. It was creditable to us as a nation that our ships were better made and better armed than the British frigates, exactly as it was creditable to them that a few years before their vessels had stood in the same relation to the Dutch ships. Footnote. After Lord Duncan's victory at Camperdown, James chronicled the fact that all the captured line of battleships were such poor craft as not to be of as much value as so many French frigates. This at least showed that the Dutch sailors must have done well to have made such a bloody and obstinate fight as they did with the materials they had. According to his own statements, the loss was about proportional to the forces in action. It was another parallel to Perry's victory. End of footnote. It was greatly to our credit that we had been enterprising enough to fit out such an effective little flotilla on Lake Erie, and for this Perry deserves the highest praise. Footnote. Some of my countrymen will consider this but scant approbation, to which the answer must be that history is not a panegyric. End of footnote. Before leaving the subject, it is worth while making a few observations on the men who composed the crews. James, who despised a Canadian as much as he hated an American, gives as one excuse for the defeat the fact that most of Barclay's crew were Canadians, whom he considers to be sorry substitutes. On each side the regular sailors from the seaboard were not numerous enough to permit the battle to be fought purely by them. Barclay took a number of soldiers of the regular army, and Perry a number of militia aboard. The former had a few Indian sharpshooters, the latter quite a number of negroes. A great many men in each fleet were lake sailors, frontiersmen, and these were the especial objects of James's contempt. But it may be doubted if they, thoroughly accustomed to lake navigation, used to contests with Indians and whites, naturally forced to be good sailors, and skilful in the use of rifle and cannon, were not, when trained by good men and on their own waters, the very best possible material. Certainly the Battle of Lake Erie, fought mainly by Canadians, was better contested than that of Lake Champlain, fought mainly by British. The difference between the American and British seamen on the Atlantic was small, but on the lakes what little there was disappeared. A New Englander and an Old Englander differed little enough, but they differed more than a frontiersman born north of the line did from one born south of it. These last two resembled one another more nearly than either did the parent. There had been no long-established naval school on the lakes, and the British sailors that came up there were the best of their kind, so the combatants were really so evenly matched in courage, skill, and all other fighting qualities as to make it impossible to award the palm to either for these attributes. The dogged obstinacy of the fighting and skillful firing and maneuvering, and the daring and coolness with which cutting out expeditions were planned and executed, were as marked on one side as the other. The only un-English element in the contest was the presence among the Canadian English of some of the descendants of the Latin race from whom they had conquered the country. Otherwise the men were equally matched, but the Americans owed their success, for the balance of success was largely on their side, to the fact 
that their officers had been trained in the best and most practical although the smallest navy of the day the british sailors on the lake were as good as our own but no better none of their commanders compare with macdonough perry deserves all praise for the manner in which he got his fleet ready his victory over barclay was precisely similar to the quasi victories of blake over the dutch which have given that admiral such renown blake's success in attacking spanish and algerian forts is his true title to fame in his engagements with the dutch fleets as well as in those of monk after him his claim to merit is no greater and no less than perry's each made a headlong attack with furious stubborn courage and by dint of sheer weight crushed or disabled a greatly inferior foe in the fight that took place on february eighteenth sixteen fifty three de reuter's ship carried but thirty-four guns footnote la vie et la action de lieutenant admiral michel de reuter amsterdam sixteen seventy seven page twenty three by the way why is tromp always called van tromp by english writers it would be quite as correct for a frenchman to speak of macnelson and a footnote and yet with it he captured the prosperous of fifty four which vessel was stronger than any of the dutch fleet the fact that blake's battles were generally so indecisive must be ascribed to the fact that his opponents were though inferior in force superior in skill no decisive defeat was inflicted on the dutch until tromp's death perry's operations were on a very small and blake's on a very large scale but whereas perry left no antagonists to question his claim to victory blake's successes were sufficiently doubtful to admit of his antagonists in almost every instance claiming that they had won or else that it was a draw of course it is absurd to put perry and blake on a par for one worked with a fleet forty times the strength of the other's flotilla but the way in which the work was done was very similar and it must always be remembered that when perry fought this battle he was but twenty-seven years old and the commanders of his other vessels were younger still champlain the commander on this lake at this time was lieutenant thomas macdonough who had superseded the former commander lieutenant sidney smith whose name was a curious commentary on the close relationship of the two contesting peoples the american naval force now consisted of two sloops the growler and eagle each mounting eleven guns and six galleys mounting one gun each lieutenant smith was sent down with his two sloops to harass the british gunboats which were stationed round the head of sorel river the outlet to lake champlain on june third he chased three gunboats into the river the wind being aft up to within sight of the fort of ile aux noix a strong british land force under general Glick, under major-general taylor now came up both banks of the narrow stream and joined the three gunboats in attacking the sloops the latter tried to beat up the stream but the current was so strong and the wind so light that no headway could be made the gunboats kept out of range of the sloops guns while keeping up a hot fire from their long twenty-fours to which no reply could be made but the galling fire of the infantry who lined the banks was responded to by showers of grape after three hours conflict at twelve thirty a twenty-four pound shot from one of the galleys struck the eagle under her starboard quarter and ripped out a whole plank under water she sank at once but it was in such shoal water that she did not settle entirely and none of the men were drowned 
soon afterward the growler had her forestay and main boom shot away and becoming unmanageable ran ashore and was also captured the growler had one killed and eight wounded the eagle eleven wounded their united crews including thirty-four volunteers amounted to one hundred twelve men the british gunboats suffered no loss of the troops on shore three were wounded one dangerously by grape footnote letter from major-general taylor british to major-general stone june third eighteen thirteen lossing says the loss of the british was probably at least one hundred on what authority of any i do not know End of footnote. lieutenant smith had certainly made a very plucky fight but it was a great mistake to get cooped up in a narrow channel with wind and current dead against him it was a very creditable success to the british and showed the effectiveness of well-handled gunboats under certain circumstances the possession of these two sloops gave the command of the lake to the british macdonough at once set about building others but with all his energy the materials at hand were so deficient that he could not get them finished in time on july thirty first one thousand british troops under colonel j murray convoyed by captain thomas everard with the sloops chubb and finch late growler and eagle and three gunboats landed at plattsburg and destroyed all the barracks and stores both there and at saranac for some reason colonel murray left so precipitately that he overlooked a picket of twenty of his men who were captured then he made descents on two or three other places and returned to the head of the lake by august third three days afterward on august sixth macdonough completed his three sloops the president montgomery and preble of seven guns each and also six gunboats which force enabled him to prevent any more plundering expeditions taking place that summer and to convoy hampton's troops when they made an abortive effort to penetrate into canada by the sorrel river on september twenty first british loss on the lakes during eighteen thirteen a ship six hundred tons twenty four guns burnt on the stocks the gloucester one hundred eighty tons ten guns taken at york the mary eighty tons three guns was burnt the drummond eighty tons three guns captured the lady gore eighty tons three guns captured schooner eighty tons three guns captured the detroit four hundred ninety tons nineteen guns captured the queen charlotte four hundred tons seventeen guns captured the lady prevost two hundred thirty tons thirteen guns captured the hunter one hundred eighty tons ten guns captured chippeway seventy tons one gun captured little belt ninety tons three guns captured total of twelve vessels two thousand five hundred sixty tons and one hundred and nine guns the american loss the growler one hundred twelve tons eleven guns captured the eagle one hundred ten tons eleven guns captured total of two vessels two hundred twenty two tons twenty two guns footnote one excluding the growler and julia which were recaptured chapter seven eighteen fourteen on the ocean during this year the blockade of the american coast was kept up with ever-increasing vigor the british frigates hovered like hawks off every seaport that was known to harbor any fighting craft they almost invariably went in couples to support one another and to lighten as far as was possible the severity of their work on the northern coasts in particular 
the intense cold of the furious winter gales rendered it no easy task to keep the assigned stations the ropes were turned into stiff and brittle bars the hulls were coated with ice and many both of men and officers were frost-bitten and crippled but no stress of weather could long keep the stubborn and hardy british from their posts with ceaseless vigilance they traversed continually the allotted cruising grounds capturing the privateers harrying the coasters and keeping the more powerful ships confined to port no american frigate could proceed singly to sea without imminent risk of being crushed by the superior force of the numerous british squadrons footnote captain broke's letter of challenge to captain lawrence and a footnote but the sloops of war commanded by officers as skilful as they were daring and manned by as hardy seamen as ever sailed salt water could often slip out generally on some dark night when a heavy gale was blowing they would make the attempt under storm canvas and with almost invariable success the harder the weather the better was their chance once clear of the coast the greater danger ceased though throughout the cruise the most untiring vigilance was needed the new sloops that i have mentioned as being built proved themselves the best possible vessels for this kind of work they were fast enough to escape from most cruisers of superior force and were overmatches for any british flush-decked ship that is for anything below the rank of the frigate-built corvettes of the cayenne's class the danger of recapture was too great to permit of prizes being sent in so they were generally destroyed as soon as captured and as the cruising grounds were chosen right in the track of commerce the damage done and consternation caused were very great besides the numerous frigates cruising along the coast in couples or small squadrons there were two or three places that were blockaded by a heavier force one of these was new london before which cruised a squadron under the direction of sir thomas hardy in the seventy-four gun ship ramillies most of the other cruising squadrons off the coast contained razees or two-deckers the boats of the hogue seventy-four took part in the destruction of some coasters and fishing-boats at pettipog in april and those of the superb seventy-four shared in a smaller expedition against wareham in june footnote james volume four page four seventy four and footnote the command on the coast of north america was now given to vice admiral sir alexander cochrane the main british force continued to lie in the chesapeake where about fifty sail were collected during the first part of this year these were under the command of sir robert barry but in may he was relieved by rear admiral cockburn footnote james volume six page four hundred thirty seven and a footnote the president forty four commodore rogers at the beginning of eighteen fourteen was still out cruising among the barbados and west indies only making a few prizes of not much value she then turned toward the american coast striking soundings near st augustine and thence proceeding north along the coast to sandy hook which was reached on february eighteenth the light was passed in the night and shortly afterward several sail were made out when the president was at once cleared for action footnote letter of commodore rogers february twentieth eighteen fourteen end of footnote one of these strange sail was the loire thirty eight british captain thomas brown which ran down to close the president unaware of her force but on discovering her to be a forty four hauled to the wind and made off 
Footnote James, volume 6, page 412. The president did not pursue another frigate and a gun brig being in sight. Footnote Naval Monument, page 235. End of footnote. This rencontre gave rise to nonsensical boastings on both sides. One American writer calls the Loire the Plantagenet 74. James, on the other hand, states that the President was afraid to engage the 38-gun frigate, and that the only reason the latter declined the combat was because she was short of men. The best answer to this is a quotation from his own work, volume 6, page 402, that the Admiralty had issued an order that no 18-pounder frigate was voluntarily to engage one of the 24-pounder frigates of America. Coupling this order with the results of the combats that had already taken place between frigates of these classes, it can always be safely set down as sheer bravado when any talk is made of an American 44 refusing to give battle to a British 38. And it is even more absurd to say that a British line of battleship would hesitate for a minute about engaging any frigate. On January 1st, the Constitution, which had been lying in Boston Harbor undergoing complete repairs, put out to sea under the command of Captain Charles Stewart. The British 38-gun frigate Nymph had been lying before the port, but she disappeared long before the Constitution was in condition, in obedience to the order already mentioned. Captain Stewart ran down toward the Barbados, and on the 14th of February captured and destroyed the British 14-gun schooner Pictou, with a crew of 75 men. After making a few other prizes, and reaching the coast of Guiana, she turned homeward, and on the 23rd of the same month fell in at the entrance to the Mona Passage, with the British 36-gun frigate Piquet, late French Pala, Captain Maitland. The Constitution at once made sail for the Piquet, steering free. Footnote letter of Captain Stewart, April 8th. 1814 and a footnote the latter at first hauled to the wind and waited for her antagonist but when the latter was still three miles distant she made out her force and immediately made all sail to escape the constitution however gained steadily till eight p m when the night and thick squally weather caused her to lose sight of the chase Captain Maitland had on board the prohibitory order issued by the Admiralty. Footnote, James, volume 6, page 477, end of footnote, and acted correctly. His ship was altogether too light for his antagonist. James, however, is not satisfied with this, and wishes to prove that both ships were desirous of avoiding the combat. He says that Captain Stewart came near enough to count thirteen ports and a bridle on the piquet's main deck and saw at once that she was of a class inferior to the guerriere or java but thought the piquet's eighteens were twenty-fours and therefore did not make an effort to bring her to action he portrays very picturesquely the grief of the piquet's crew when they find they are not going to engage how they come aft and request to be taken into action how captain maitland reads them his instructions but fails to persuade them that there had been any necessity of issuing them and finally how the sailors overcome by woe and indignation refuse to take their supper-time grog which was certainly remarkable as the constitution had twice captured british frigates with impunity according to james himself is it likely that she would now shrink from an encounter with a ship which she saw at once was of an inferior class to those already conquered even such abject cowards as james's americans would not be guilty of so stupid an action of course neither captain stewart nor anyone else supposed for an instant that a thirty-six-gun frigate was armed with twenty-four pounders 
it is worth while mentioning as an instance of how utterly untrustworthy james is in dealing with american affairs that he says page four hundred seventy six that the constitution was now what the americans would call a bad crew whereas in her previous battles all her men had been picked curiously enough this is the exact reverse of the truth in no case was an american ship manned with a picked crew but the nearest approach to such was the crew the constitution carried in this and the next cruise when she probably possessed as fine a crew as ever manned a frigate they were principally new england men and it has been said of them that they were almost qualified to fight the ship without her officers footnote cooper volume two page four hundred sixty three and a footnote the statement that such men commanded by one of the bravest and most skilful captains of our navy would shrink from attacking a greatly inferior foe is hardly worth while denying and fortunately such denial is needless captain stewart's account being fully corroborated in the memoir of admiral durham written by his nephew captain murray london eighteen forty six the constitution arrived off the port of marblehead on april third and at seven a m fell in with the two british thirty-eight gun frigates junon captain upton and tenedos captain parker the american frigate was standing to the westward with the wind about north by west and bore for the two british frigates about northwest by west the junon and tenedos quickly hauled up in chase and the constitution crowded sail in the direction of marblehead at nine thirty finding the tenedos rather gaining upon her the constitution started her water and threw overboard a quantity of provisions and other articles at eleven thirty she hoisted her colors and the two british frigates who were now dropping slowly in the chase did the same at one thirty p m the constitution anchored in the harbor of marblehead captain parker was anxious to follow her into the port which had no defences but the tenedos was recalled by a signal from the junon footnote james volume six page four hundred seventy nine end of footnote shortly afterward the constitution again put out and reached boston unmolested on january twenty ninth eighteen fourteen the small u s coasting schooner alligator of four guns and forty men sailing master r bassett was lying at anchor in the mouth of stone river south carolina when a frigate and a brig were perceived close inshore near the breakers judging from their motions that they would attempt to cut him out when it was dark mr bassett made his preparations accordingly footnote letter of sailing master bassett january thirty first eighteen fourteen end of footnote at half past seven six boats were observed approaching cautiously under cover of the marsh with muffled oars on being hailed they cheered and opened with boat carronades and musketry coming on at full speed whereupon the alligator cut her cable and made sail the wind being light from the southwest while the crew opened such a heavy fire on the assailants who were not then thirty yards off that they stopped the advance and fell astern at this moment the alligator grounded but the enemy had suffered so severely that they made no attempt to renew the attack rowing off downstream on board the alligator two men were killed and two wounded including the pilot who was struck down by a grape-shot while standing at the helm and her sails and rigging were much cut the extent of the enemy's loss was never known next day one of his cutters was picked up at north adisto much injured and containing the bodies of an officer and a seaman footnote letter from commander j h dent february twenty first eighteen fourteen end of footnote for his skill and gallantry mr bassett was promoted to a lieutenancy and for a time his exploit 
put a complete stop to the cutting out expeditions along that part of the coast the alligator herself sank in a squall on july first but was afterward raised and refitted it is much to be regretted that it is almost impossible to get at the british account of any of these expeditions which ended successfully for the americans all such cases are generally ignored by the british historians so that i am obliged to rely solely upon the accounts of the victors who with the best intentions in the world could hardly be perfectly accurate at the close of eighteen thirteen captain porter was still cruising in the pacific early in january the essex now with two hundred fifty five men aboard made the south american coast and on the twelfth of that month anchored in the harbor of valparaiso she had in company a prize rechristened the essex junior with a crew of sixty men and twenty guns ten long sixes and ten eighteen-pound carronades of course she could not be used in combat with regular cruisers on february eighth the british frigate phoebe thirty six captain james hilliar accompanied by the cherub eighteen captain thomas tudor tucker the former carrying three hundred and the latter one hundred forty men footnote they afterward took on board enough men from british merchant vessels to raise their complements respectively to three hundred twenty and one hundred eighty and a footnote made their appearance and apparently proposed to take the essex by a coup de main they hauled into the harbor on a wind the cherub falling to leeward while the phoebe made the port quarter of the essex and then putting her helm down luffed up on her starboard bow but ten or fifteen feet distant porter's crew were all at quarters the powder boys with slow matches ready to discharge the guns the boarders standing by cutlass in hand to board in the smoke everything was cleared for action on both frigates captain hilliar now probably saw that there was no chance of carrying the essex by surprise and standing on the aftergun he inquired after captain porter's health the latter returned the inquiry but warned hilliar not to fall foul the british captain then braced back his yards remarking that if he did fall aboard it would be purely accidental well said porter you have no business where you are if you touch a rope yarn of this ship i shall board you instantly footnote life of farragut page thirty three and a footnote the phoebe in her then position was completely at the mercy of the american ships and hilliar greatly agitated assured porter that he meant nothing hostile and the phoebe backed down her yards passing over those of the essex without touching a rope and anchored half a mile astern shortly afterward the two captains met on shore when hilliar thanked porter for his behavior and on his inquiry assured him that after thus owing his safety to the latter's forbearance porter need be under no apprehension as to his breaking the neutrality the british ships now began a blockade of the port on february twenty seventh the phoebe being hove to close off the port and the cherub a league to leeward the former fired a weather-gun and essex interpreting this as a challenge took the crew of the essex junior aboard and went out to attack the british frigate but the latter did not await the combat she bore up set her studding sails and ran down to the cherub the american officers were intensely irritated over this and american writers have sneered much at a british thirty six refusing combat with an american thirty two but the armaments of the two frigates were so wholly dissimilar that it is hard to make comparisons when the fight really took place the essex was so crippled and the water so smooth that the british ships fought at their own distance 
and as they had long guns to oppose to Porter's carronades, this really made the cherub more nearly suited to contend with the Essex than the latter was to fight the Phoebe. But when the Essex in fairly heavy weather, with the crew of the Essex Junior aboard, was to windward, the circumstances were very different. She carried as many men and guns as the Phoebe, and in close combat or in a hand-to-hand -hand struggle could probably have taken her still hilliard's conduct in avoiding porter except when the cherub was in company was certainly over-cautious and very difficult to explain in a man of his tried courage on march twenty seventh porter decided to run out of the harbour on the first opportunity so as to draw away his two antagonists in chase and let the essex junior escape this plan had to be tried sooner than was expected the two vessels were always ready the essex only having her proper complement of two hundred fifty five men aboard on the next day the twenty eighth it came on to blow from the south when the essex parted her port cable and dragged the starboard anchor to leeward so she got under way and made sail by several trials it had been found that she was faster than the Phoebe, and that the Cherub was very slow indeed. So Porter had little anxiety about his own ship, only fearing for his consort. The British vessels were close in with the weathermost point of the bay, but Porter thought he could weather them and hauled up for that purpose. Just as he was rounding the outermost point which if accomplished, would have secured his safety, a heavy squall struck the Essex, and when she was nearly gunwale under, the main topmast went by the board. She now wore and stood in for the harbour, but the wind had shifted, and on account of her crippled condition she could not gain it. So she bore up and anchored in a small bay three miles from Valparaiso and half a mile from a detached Chilean battery of one gun, the Essex being within pistol shot of the shore. Footnote letter of Captain David Porter, July 3, 1814, The Phoebe and Cherub now bore down upon her, covered with ensigns, Union Jacks, and motto flags, and it became evident that Hilliard did not intend to keep his word as soon as he saw that porter was disabled so the essex prepared for action though there could be no chance whatever of success her flags were flying from every mast and everything was made ready as far as was possible the attack was made before springs could be got on her cables she was anchored so near the shore as to preclude the possibility of captain hilliard's passing ahead of her footnote letter of captain james hilliard march thirtieth eighteen fourteen end of footnote so his two ships came cautiously down the cherub taking her position on the starboard bow of the essex and the phoebe under the latter's stern the attack began at four p m footnote meantime Porter says 3.45, Hilliard a few minutes past four. The former says the first attack lasted half an hour, the latter but ten minutes. I accordingly make it twenty. End of footnote. Some of the bow-guns of the American frigate bore upon the cherub, and as soon as she found this out, the sloop ran down and stationed herself near the Phoebe. The latter had opened with her broadside of long eighteens, from a position in which not one of porter's guns could reach her three times springs were got on the cables of the essex in order to bring her round till her broadside bore but in each instant they were shot away as soon as they were hauled taut three long twelves were going out of the stern ports and with these an animated fire was kept up on the two british ships the aim being especially to cripple their rigging a good many of porter's crew were killed during the first five minutes before he could bring any guns to bear 
but afterward he did not suffer much and at four twenty after a quarter of an hour's fight between the three long twelves of the essex and the whole thirty-six broadside guns of the phoebe and cherub the latter were actually driven off they wore and again began with their long guns but these producing no visible effect both of the british ships hauled out of the fight at four thirty having lost the use of mainsail jib and mainstail appearances looked a little inauspicious writes captain hilyar but the damages were soon repaired and his two ships stood back for the crippled foe both stationed themselves on her port quarter the phoebe at anchor with a spring firing her broadside while the cherub kept under way using her long bow chasers their fire was very destructive for they were out of reach of the essex's carronades and not one of the long guns could be brought to bear on them porter now cut his cable at five twenty and tried to close with his antagonists after many ineffectual efforts sail was made the flying jib halyards were the only serviceable ropes uncut that sail was hoisted and the foretop sail and foresail let fall though the want of sheets and tacks rendered them almost useless still the essex drove down on her assailants and for the first time got near enough to use her carronades for a minute or two the firing was tremendous but after the first broadside the cherub hauled out of the fight in great haste and during the remainder of the action confined herself to using her bow guns from a distance immediately afterward the phoebe also edged off and by her superiority of sailing her foe being now almost helpless was enabled to choose her own distance and again opened from her long eighteens out of range of porter's carronades footnote american writers often sneer at hilyar for keeping away from the essex and out of reach of her short guns but his conduct was eminently proper in this respect it was no part of his duty to fight the essex at the distance which best suited her but on the contrary at that which least suited her he of course wished to win the victory with the least possible loss to himself and acted accordingly his conduct in the action itself could not be improved upon End of footnote. the carnage on board the essex had now made her decks look like shambles one gun was manned three times fifteen men being slain at it its captain alone escaped without a wound there were but one or two instances of flinching the wounded many of them were killed by flying splinters while under the hands of the doctors cheered on their comrades and themselves worked at the guns like fiends as long as they could stand at one of the bow guns was stationed a young scotchman named bisley who had one leg shot off close by the groin using his handkerchief as a tourniquet he said turning to his american shipmates i left my own country and adopted the united states to fight for her i hope i have this day proved myself worthy of the country of my adoption i am no longer of any use to you or to her so good-bye with these words he leaned on the sill of the port and threw himself overboard footnote this and most of the other anecdotes are taken from the invaluable life of farragut page thirty seven to forty six and a footnote among the very few men who flinched was one named william roach porter sent one of his midshipmen to shoot him but he was not to be found he was discovered by a man named william call whose leg had been shot off and was hanging by the skin and who dragged the shattered stump all round the bag-house pistol in hand trying to get a shot at him lieutenant j g cowell with his leg shot off above the knee and his life might have been saved had it been amputated at once but the surgeons already had rows of wounded men waiting for them and when it was proposed to him that he should be attended 
too out of order he replied no doctor none of that fair play's a jewel one man's life is as dear as another's i would not cheat any poor man out of his turn so he stayed at his post and died from loss of blood finding it hopeless to try to close the essex stood for the land porter intending to run her ashore and burn her but when she had drifted close to the bluffs the wind suddenly shifted took her flat aback and paid her head off shore exposing her to a raking fire at this moment lieutenant downs commanding the junior pulled out in a boat through all the fire to see if he could do anything three of the men with him including an old boatswain's mate named kingsbury had come out expressly to share the fate of their old ship so they remained aboard and in their places lieutenant downs took some of the wounded ashore while the cherub kept up a tremendous fire upon him the shift of the wind gave porter a faint hope of closing and once more the riddled hulk of the little american frigate was headed for her foes but hilyar put his helm up to avoid close quarters the battle was his already and the cool old captain was too good an officer to leave anything to chance seeing he could not close porter had a hawser bent on the sheet anchor and let go this brought the ship's head around keeping her stationary and from such of her guns as were not dismounted and had men enough to man them a broadside was fired at the phoebe the wind now very light and the phoebe whose main and mizzen masts and main yard were rather seriously wounded and who had suffered a great loss of canvas and cordage aloft besides receiving a number of shot between wind and water footnote captain hillier's letter james says the phoebe had seven shot between wind and water and one below the water line porter says she had eighteen twelve pound shot below the water line the latter statement must have been an exaggeration and james is probably farther wrong still end of footnote and was thus a good deal crippled began to drift slowly to leeward it was hoped that she would drift out of gunshot but this last chance was lost by the parting of the hawser which left the essex at the mercy of the british vessels their fire was deliberate and destructive and could only be occasionally replied to by a shot from one of the long twelves of the essex the ship caught fire and the flames came bursting up the hatchway and a quantity of powder exploded below many of the crew were knocked overboard by shot and drowned others leaped into the water thinking the ship was about to blow up and tried to swim to the land some succeeded among them was one man who had sixteen or eighteen pieces of iron in his leg scales from the muzzle of his gun the frigate had been shattered to pieces above the water-line although from the smoothness of the sea she was not harmed enough below it to reduce her to a sinking condition footnote an exactly analogous case to that of the british sloop reindeer and a footnote the carpenter reported that he alone of his crew was fit for duty the others were dead or disabled lieutenant wilmer was knocked overboard by a splinter and drowned his little negro boy rough came up on deck and hearing of the disaster deliberately leaped into the sea and shared his master's fate lieutenant odenheimer was also knocked overboard but afterward regained the ship a shot glancing upward killed four of the men who were standing by a gun striking the last one in the head and scattering his brains over his comrades the only commissioned officer left on duty was lieutenant decatur mcknight the sailing master barnwell when terribly wounded remained at his post till he fainted from loss of blood 
of the 255 men aboard the Essex when the battle began, 58 had been killed, 66 wounded, and 31 drowned, missing, while 24 had succeeded in reaching shore. But 76 men were left unwounded, and many of these had been bruised or otherwise injured. Porter himself was knocked down by the windage of a passing shot, while the young midshipman Farragut was on the wardroom ladder going below for gun primers the captain of the gun directly opposite the hatchway was struck full in the face by an eighteen-pound shot and tumbled back on him they fell down the hatch together farragut being stunned for some minutes later while standing by the man at the wheel an old quartermaster named francis bland a shot coming over the foreyard took off the quartermaster's right leg, carrying away at the same time one of Farragut's coat-tails. The old fellow was helped below, but he died for lack of a tourniquet before he could be attended to. End of Part 12